Welcome, listeners, to www.ironradio.org, the website and podcast for all things strength sports and sports nutrition. With your hosts, Lonnie Lowry. Remember, Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree held together with scar tissue and bone spurs. Rob Fortney. And I'm telling you, the pain that I would suffer was beyond excruciating. And Phil Stevens. Do it, Rob. You'll kill all those nerves. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everybody. Go to strengthguild.com, S-T-R-E-N-G-T-H-G-U-I-L-D.com. Scroll down to the Iron Radio Collections, and we've got new shirts and new banners for you to support the show. Everything from just a regular banner, regular shirt, to ones with sayings on them, like Lonnie's Phil is like a gnarled old oak tree shirt. And some news for you, we're going to have some contests for people who own these shirts and things. So if you support the show, we'll let you more on that later. So if you get in on these early, you can be one of the first people to win some prizes. So, thank you very much. Go check out the site, strengthguild.com. Scroll down to Iron Radio Collections and support the show. Welcome, Iron Radio listeners. This is Lonnie Lowry. I'm an exercise physiology and nutrition professor of about 20 years, and I'm a former competitive bodybuilder. This is Phil Stevens. I'm a strength coach. I run Strength Guild. I'm also a powerlifter, dabble in Highland Games and other stuff, so... Is Dr. Mike Nelson, creator of the Flux Diet Cert, faculty member at the Kerrig Institute, a bunch of other stuff, and still at home. Reason my <laughs> nuts suck off. It's zero degrees. <laughs> <laughs> I, thought we, I thought we had it bad here, and it's it's nineteen. But uh, yeah, we have the snow apocalypse. Yeah, I have this. Yeah, we've got a half inch <laughs> and growing at this time. The whole town's going crazy. I was looking at land in Alaska. And it was negative thirty-five when I was like, I was like, oh, oh it's kind of cold. There. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, no wonder land's so cheap. So, yeah. and don't forget dark too. Yeah, I know. Yeah, that'd yeah. be the hardest part. Oh, it's weird, man. It's yeah. it's a beautiful area, but man, it's uh, I love visiting Alaska. I've been there a couple of times. My uncle lives there. It's amazing, but. And I don't think I could live there. <laughs> yeah. I think we've all been up by the Arctic Circle at one point or another, and it's just, it's so freaky, you know. Um, oh, yeah. 20 hours of darkness in the winter and then the opposite oh. in the summer kind of thing or, or yeah. worse. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, everybody, we have a show of basically mail-in news. Um, so just in in a internal way to start this i guess i thought we would check in with phil as far as his equipped versus raw adventures so phil what's happening there strength and muscle sport news not how much i put on my squat suit for the first real session last saturday right after the show and as expected i think it's i'm gonna learn the squat suit a lot faster than the bed shirt but uh just messing around, we went up to a fairly easy 675. So you're talking only only 50 pounds away from my best ever without the suit. Um, wow. And that's without, like, I haven't touched more than 405 since my meet in <laughs> right, November. Right. <clears throat> so just putting that on my back. And, yeah, it was fine. Um, I can tell you this. I can see why you watch equipped injuries in squat, and usually it's knees. And usually it's when they get pushed forward onto their knees, so they overload the knee, and then you see a knee go. Um, I now know why that happens. Basically, the suit is pushing on your ass. As you go down, the suit pushes on your posterior more. And if you don't cognitively sit into it, 
Oh, it'll shove you It forward. pushes you forward onto your yeah. knees. So I went 725 after 675, and I just got in the zone, which my zone is targeted at raw lifting, <laughs> and uh, uh, squatted how I normally would, and went down fairly quickly, and it automatically just whoop, pushed me onto my knees. Oh. Uh, and I was like, oh, shit, take it, take it, take it, take it. And the guys took it pretty easy, but... Uh, <laughs> It was like, I see how that happens now. Um, so basically what I need to do now, and it'll start this week, I'm, I'm, I'm backing off just a little bit. I'll just base off like 80% of that 675 I hit easy. And I just need to hit like triples and just get used to multiple sets of triples, getting used to sitting back in that suit. Because I need to ingrain that movement pattern to where, okay, this is what I do now. Um, so... Other than that, you know, did some light box squats on Wednesday. And the weirdest thing, I... With 135, I got stuck on the box in the suit. <laughs> really? Yeah, once I had 405 on there, I moved easy. <laughs> wow. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it just pushed me into some weird position. So Yeah. Uh, I was like, shit, guys, I'm stuck. So, <laughs> it's embarrassing. Like, yeah, pretty much. I, I got up, but I had to <laughs> finagle my way around. But, uh, yeah, and I'm not getting a lot out of the suit yet either. Uh, it's pretty loose, so it, I'll do another week before we start even altering it. But uh, just getting used to it, and yeah, it's fun, fun so far. So. Yeah, you know, to me that shows that even very experienced people, if you're not used to a motor pattern, you got to kind of lay one down, you know, uh, um, create one. So. <clears throat> okay. Um, well, let me start with a a quick. Um, mail or two and then uh we've just got a show again of, of mail and news sorts of things uh, just because it kind of builds up on us these days this first one is from nick and pete and i thought i would just mention this uh he says dear guys my identical uh twin brother uh, peter and i have been listening to iron radio for years we deeply appreciate your professional organized evidence-driven program as well as the diversity of information and experience brought by yourself and phil and mike uh, we equally miss Rob. Uh, they say, let's see, they had the opportunity to meet and watch Phil compete at the Slingshot Record Breakers, and we very uh, enjoyed having the opportunity to chat uh, and enjoyed the competition. So that's cool. Uh, we're grateful for your continued commitment to deliver research, interesting content and valuable advice, and conversations on health and training. I'm writing to share this recipe with you as I thought you might enjoy it. And this looks really good, actually, uh, guys. Uh, it's a beef chuck chili. And what I, what I like about it is it uses like one-inch diced-up chuck, and they um, you mix it with the dry all these dry spices, you know, the cumin and some cayenne and the usual chili-type things. But then you kind of brown it you know, um, before you kind of throw it into the chili. And that I, that just makes such good chili. I mean, it's one thing just to kind of use ground meat, but if you chunk things up and you kind of season and, like, brown it in oil, oh, yeah. So this is a really nice chili recipe, and I'm actually going to try it, guys. So I thought I would at least nice. let you know. Um, the other one here, uh, just quickly, I just wanted to say thanks to Delaney. Made a donation recently. I want to try to be better about mentioning those things, so that's appreciated. Um, and before I get into the, my little batch of science news, what about listener questions or any questions that have cropped up? Mike, do you have any from, um, your travels in the past week or two? 
Yeah, I got a couple. I got one of them is kind of a general question of for programming and your main goal is uh, lifting. How do you know how much cardio you should do? And I think it's a it's a good question because I'd say maybe five years ago, I didn't really think too much about cardio. And I think we've all kind of gone through a stint, or at least I know I did, where uh, I just need to get bigger, so I'm just going to lift all the time and eat. And uh, cardio may make my muscles smaller. And yeah. so I actually stopped doing all of it <laughs> for like three months. <clears throat> I remember I was working at a medical tech company at the time. I remember walking in and getting to literally the second floor with just a backpack and a cooler, and I started breathing pretty heavy. I'm like, this sucks. <laughs> and I went back home, and I looked at like my lifting stuff, and I'm like, well, did I actually get significantly better? And I'm like, no, I just got a lot fatter. <laughs> mm. You kind of reach that upper end where it's like you're gaining weight, so the scale's going up, but like you know, none of my lifts were going up dramatically more. And then I'm like, well, how do I like the rest of my life? I'm like, I hate it. This is horrible. <laughs> so... Um, so what I have people do now is there's a bunch of different tests you can do. Um, if you're running and you feel capable running, which I don't really recommend a lot of large mammals run. If you see them run, it's no. kind of scary. Yes. Um, but you can do a Cooper run test. So how far can you run in 12 minutes? Um, I use a rower, which I got from Dr. Kenneth J. So get on the rower, uh, warm up, and then do a 2,000-meter row and just go as hard as you can. And it's definitely going to suck. Yeah, your pacing of form is probably not going to be the best. If you're really worried, you can try it a couple of days in a row if you're really masochistic. And you can look online for the Concept2. Just type up Concept2 VO2 Max. And you can type in your name, or not really your name, but your stats. And it'll give you kind of normalized data, which is cool. So I look at that, and if someone's like at the Reddit client a couple of months ago, was it like the bottom 20%? I'm like, yep, you definitely need to to work on that. Mm -hmm. You know, if you're up near, yeah, you know, 75, maybe even 60 percent, yeah, then it kind of is more on your your goals and what what you're trying to do. Um, so use that as a good baseline, and then from there, I tend to just do old school, low intensity, aerobic based building stuff. Uh, ideally, fasted if they can, uh, just on their off days. So if they're lifting Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday is an optional day and have them do some easy cardio Tuesday, Thursday, Sunday, you know. So not a lot. Um, initially just starting at maybe 10 minutes, but I've had people go up as high as 40 minutes or higher. Um, the key is usually I'll put a heart rate strap on them. So if you want to do a top-end heart rate, 180 minus your age usually, which is from Phil Moffatone. So if you're 40, so 180 minus 40, your max heart rate for those lower to moderate in intensity sessions to start would be about 140. Um, so kind of an outline of something to play around with. I have found that most people then do recover a little bit better. They feel better. Um, and, and then from there, you can start adding in more intervals and stuff like that in the future if you're used to it. But do you do any direct programming of cardio for your lifters at all, Phil? Yeah. It just depends on the lifter and what they need. Yeah. Um, How do you go usually, about that? Uh, I don't watch them do it. I just like, usually I'll just prescribe weekly. Like you need yeah. to do this many hours a week and I don't care when you do it. And then that can be walking or, you know, usually I have them walk or weighted vest or yeah, sled pushes that's or something like that. So not much running unless they're into a running sport. So yeah, mm -hmm. but I don't want to watch them do it. It's like, that's boring. <laughs> oh no. no. <laughs> yeah. But online is I have them sync an app to the rower. 
and then I can go in and look online and see what they did, and I get actually all the stats from the rower. So even if people are listening and you run a gym and you want to put one of your staff members just in charge of accountability if you think somebody's slacking or whatever, there's different ways you can do that, and it'll just upload online. You can check that way too. But, yeah, I agree. Watching someone do cardio is just like watching paint dry. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Basically a spectator, you know. Yeah. yeah, unless you're doing technique work or something like that, but that's different. Yeah. Yeah. Some of the um, different tests, it's it's nice that you you can get information about norms and what's good and have some comparisons yeah. because it's for me it was always that population specificity thing. I used to walk uphill for my like uh, my fasting cardio stuff before breakfast and I would actually get my heart rate in the 120s and just try to keep it in you know really pretty low like that. Um, that's when I was younger. Now I guess it'd be even a little bit less because I've aged, but, um, it does make me wonder. There's no doubt that when I used to do, um, some cardio and I mean some, a little bit of intensity work here and there, dabble it in for God's sake, you know, you're not going to lose all your muscle mass. Um, but I would just feel for lack of a better way to put it cleaner, like somehow the system was, the engine was running better, um, as as opposed to when all I did was eat and lift, because I did it for way more than three months at a time, I'll tell you. Um, <laughs> and you get kind of stagnant. You just feel kind of big and bloated and, and I don't know, slightly dysfunctional, you know, because you're sort of specializing, I guess. But Yeah, I just find that even in clients, just overall energy and ability to recover just tends to go down. You know, and that makes sense because most of that is going to be run by aerobic metabolism. You know, if you've got less mitochondria, you're not as good at using fat. Yeah, I know you can use carbs for aerobic metabolism too, but um, so I look at that a lot and just what they report. You know, if they're you know doing halfway intelligent training and it's only three days a week, and they're not doing any other cardio stuff, and we test them and they're real low, and their complaint is, I don't know, I just feel tired all the time and just feel kind of, and their sleep and everything else happens to be good, then. That usually makes a pretty big difference. Mm-hmm. I'm always concerned, especially if you start becoming heavy for your height. If your BMI is high, um, I think you got to be careful your choice of some of these tests because your heart rate's Definitely. through the roof. And it's like, well, you're so out of shape. It's like, no, I'm carrying, do more work. I'm carrying more mass, you know, and, and stuff like that. Did you say, Mike, what, what was a decent uh, score for the 12-minute uh, walk-run test or whatever? Uh, just so um, I just use a conversion online. I think it's exercise.net or it's from, I believe it's originally from the was it Cooper Institute, Cooper, like in yeah. the 70s, right? Yeah. 74 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I just use one of the online converters and I'll convert it to a VO2 max. And you know, just again, it's a rough approximate. I only really do that. I've got a couple of obstacle racers and people that like and enjoy running. So I'll use it with them. But if someone's more just a classic lifter, I'll just use the rower because... Man, I oh, just watching them run for even a few seconds. I want to throw battery acid in my eyes. It's just not pretty. So I just don't want all that mechanical stress. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to program them to run anyway because of that. So again, it's not yeah. going to be super specific to what they're doing. Right. I mean, a lot of those tests, that's actually a good point. If you can find a website that's not hokey, um, there's really high correlation, like 0.9 correlation. I'm looking yeah. here with the Cooper test and, and stuff like that. Um, but I agree. I mean, when I blew out my left knee a couple of years ago, that was because I was running, you know, and mm-hmm. I'm not a large mammal, but, you know, I still weigh over 200 pounds on a five, nine frame. And it's just, 
my knees are getting older and blew one out, you know, medial meniscus just tore right up. So uh, I just don't think it's, I don't know. It's just not a very kind movement for people who are strong enough because they're lifters or heavier for their height or whatever. I almost rather have them do other things. And I know you're a, you're all about the rower, Mike, but yeah. And I think it, it's at some point for general health, you can make a very good argument that you should have the capacity to run and do some sprints. Uh, I know for myself, it took me and probably four or five years to get back to that point. Uh, but having said that, you just only need to do enough to kind of keep that ability then. And you don't need to do it very much at all. I think that's just a human movement everyone should be semi-okay at. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's completely different from it's something you're going to train, you know, even every week or high volume. So yeah. I think it just running and sprinting is just a really good test of just someone's overall human movement. But that doesn't mean I'm going to have a 270-pound person do tons of running. <laughs> no. There, I mean, if you go sprint um, before my knee problem, every once in a while I would do that. And I'll tell you, if you sprint hard and you're a regular weightlifter um, with little w, um, yeah, I mean, it's so hard to recover. You're like, oh, my God, I'm destroyed. You know, because basically when you sprint, you just pedal to the metal. You know, you open up the gas and it's damaging, man. Yeah, it's six to ten times body weight of force per strike, depending on what you're looking at. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I took a sprinting course several years ago, and I didn't have as much time to prep for it as I should. So I just went to the track and just did some light stuff, and it was pretty intelligent about it. Didn't do much at all. Woke up the next day, I was like, "Wow, my hamstrings are a little sore." And then like two days later, I'm like, "Holy crap, my adductors are so sore. I'm walking around like a freaking penguin." And I'm like, why are my adductors so sore? I'm like, oh, dumbass, because you're supporting your entire load on that one limb as you're going through the cycle. Yeah. And it was just something I hadn't done before. And, man, they were lit up like Christmas trees. Yeah, you start to realize there's flight time, you know, when you're that explosive. <clears throat> yep. And the faster the faster you go, it's got a lot to do with how hard you can drive your foot into the ground, you know. Yep. Um yeah, it's plus, you know, I think we're it's good to mention this for our listeners, because if you haven't done much sprinting or anything and you're like, you know, those guys are right. I'm feeling stagnant. I'm I'm a little heavy and I'm not aerobically fit right now. Don't just go immediately jump into sprinting. I think of all those stories in the muscle mags of you know, those guys were were chemically enhanced. But, you know, a lot of those pro bodybuilders, they would try to sprint even once and they would tear their hamstrings, you know. Yep. So you got to be kind of cautious with this stuff. Yeah, it's a extreme heavy eccentric overload, violent motion. I mean, you're just taking that hip all the way into extension and just ripping it back from an end range of motion. So it's a very cool motion. Like watching sprinters run is just amazing or even just athletes move. But yeah, I agree. It's something you have to be prepared. And you know, most of the time, if you can even get help from a local sprint coach or someone to walk you through it, that'll make a huge difference too. Mm-hmm. I think about how Phil talks about how everyone is anterior dominant these days too. And that's just going to make it worse in a lot of ways, you know? Okay. Ah, Sip of coffee here. This is a relevant piece of news. I just want to share this before we, uh, we go to break here, just kind of get the news kicking off because it's about fast twitch stuff. Um, We were just talking about 23andMe and a lot of these genetic tests. And I saw this of all places, Forbes magazine. So, this is a recent Forbes magazine, but don't put too much stock in it, you, you know, physiologists out there necessarily. But 
Uh, it's sort of a report of what's happening, but it says genetics companies like 23andMe are massively popular um, with an $800 million global market now for direct-to-consumer genetic testing. Um, to follow up on this, Singapore-based startup Elixir, E-L-X-R, is focused on just one of these genes, the ACTN3, the actin-3 gene, uh, known as the, quote, gene for speed. And that just sounds like marketing, but uh, it influences the composition of muscle tissue. With people expressing this gene, more fast-twitch muscle fibers, apparently, or, you know, that kind of uh, look to their proportion of, of muscle tissue. And they go on to try to explain the ones, people without the uh, ACTN3 gene are predisposed to be better at endurance. So if you have this this gene, um more fast twitch fibers apparently uh so it says they then create personalized fitness regimens based on whether or not you have this this gene uh and that that's where we are talking recently about uh, should this be actionable like this you know i mean would you, would you design a program around this I would want to see a lot more than just this information. Like phenotypically, what is this person like, you know? Um, but anyway, it says it was a eureka moment, according to Elixir founder uh, Stefan Foon. So, Eureka moment that he could just make a lot of money? There. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Like I can't imagine Phil saying, spit in this tube. We're going to wait a couple of weeks. All right, l- let me give you a template program because you're a fast mm-hmm. twitch guy. That's just really hard to swallow, you know. So, but which way do you go on that, right? So, like, if if the if the test comes back and says, "Yep, you do have the ACTN3 gene, and you want to be a power lifter," how is that different than someone who doesn't have that gene who wants to be a power lifter? Yeah, mm-hmm. like, what would you change, right? Because you you still have to get to the same outcome i can't imagine that oh you don't have this gene let's just train slow twitch you're gonna suck (laughs) yeah yeah it removes your free will like i guess i'm just a long distance runner you know i i I don't want to do strength change their sport i don't Mm -hmm. know it's just anyway so i thought that was sort of relevant since we were just talking about sprinting and whatnot but um i do think our listeners know this but we, we all have to be careful as far as whether it's you know, I have this suite of genes, and therefore I should eat this diet or this now this suite of gene, this particular gene, and I need to be put on, you know, a strength of power program or something like that. I don't know, whatever. Yeah, we really gotta. You can't remove the role of the coach. I mean, because I think Phil, you probably process dozens of things and almost subconsciously now. You know, from form to the amount of muscle mass the person is carrying to their actual uh, performance. Are they naturally athletic? I mean, there must be a hundred things that go into when you design something. Yeah. And and a lot of that, a lot of that, like you said, is just done on the fly and seeing a move and yeah. <laughs> seeing stuff in person. I mean, not not them spitting in a cup. Yeah, for sure. But I mean, it's interesting addition, you know, it is. Um, it is. But, I see something like that just like I have no interest in even taking a test like that um, because like Mike said, what's it going to do? Am I really going to change just everything I'm doing? Like I really enjoy this, but it says I supposedly suck at it. So yeah. I don't see it adding any benefit uh, mentally. Yeah. Except for, I mean, well, 
Unless I got the test back and I was like, yeah, you are fast twitch. Well, great. You know, but if it went the other way, it's just, it's not going to be anything Yeah, it's good. depressing, demotivating. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Why am I even doing it? Right. Well, plus, you may be seeing someone who's already been training for 15 years, right? Yeah. So their phenotypical expression of whatever their genetics are is probably going to be different than someone who walked in who just has the same gene and hasn't trained. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, that would Unless be fun. This, I'll do it on birth and lead them in that way, you know, from mm-hmm. birth. But, mm-hmm. yeah. It'd be fun to take two guys that, like, fresh, you know, they're basically untrained, and one has a gene and one doesn't. Um, take Take the one that doesn't, train them, and try to get as much speed and mass and power as you can compared to the person on a a, a very mild training program or something that's not as well structured and probably watch the guy without the gene dominate, right? <laughs> because uh, any phenotypical kind of thing I'm sure is going to be multitudinous. You know, there's so many factors that go into this. So yeah, this deterministic thing is, is it's very Gattaca. Like I don't, you know, don't like this stuff. But. Yeah. And I don't think there's been, I could be wrong. I haven't looked, but, I don't think there's any interventional studies on just that gene only, correct, related to training. Right? So say, okay, yeah, you guys have this gene, you don't, or you know, however you want to divide it out and have them train and see what happens in terms of an outcome. I don't even yeah. know if that's been done. Someone can email in and correct us on that. Right. So. I know for years, MedSize Sports Exercise, the journal, they would put out like a annual review of what's up with like sports genetics you know um sometimes it can be valuable like oh you're susceptible to achilles rupture okay that's that might be good to know you know something like that but as far as performance and stuff goes yeah i don't know uh if they keep you know publishing that annual thing or semi-annual update on performance genetics because you hear so much about genes and disease or genes and nutrition you don't hear as much about performance genetics really but it's a thing Plus, I mean, we have to think about epigenetics, you know, all the lifestyle yeah. things that turn on or off the activity of these genes. So, anyway. Yeah. As I say that, I've got another genetic test I just did the other day sitting on my desk I need to send in. Well, <laughs> they, they're fun. I've just fun. basically been doing it because I get so many questions from clients, and kind of exactly what you guys said. It's, it's interesting. I think it's fascinating. There's some stuff, you know, with caffeine and other things where it is very useful, but a lot of it is... I just don't think it's like super actionable, right? It's like there's not enough follow-up data to say, okay, I got this. It's kind of cool. It's kind of interesting. It's kind of sexy. But, you know, have I found one that's radically changed how I'm going to train so far? Not really. So Yeah. For me, it's it's almost like nutrition assessments where for decades we've – there is a labs component to this. Like if you can work with a physician sure. and get him to order some labs, get her to order some labs – uh, it's like, for example, with um, metabolic syndrome, which is roughly one out of three, one out of four people. You might see central body fat and high blood pressure, but I would like to see their HDL and their blood glucose, you know, or their insulin level. So it's sometimes it's good to get some of the biochemical stuff, but it's almost like the coach uh, or the the health professional needs to look at the form and not not necessarily divulge everything that's in the form to the patient or the client. You know what I mean? I'm not saying withhold anything, but help them interpret stuff. Uh, because the labs like this, the biochemistry stuff, it, it's mechanistic and it, it informs what you're looking at 
in the real world, in the you know phenotypical expression of everything. But it's almost better just to have keep the cards close to your chest as the coach because you wouldn't want to be deterministic with someone. Well, you know, you're out of strength, Guild, dude. You don't have the gene. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that just doesn't sound right at all. It's so dystopian. Yeah. Yeah. And even when you frame stuff like that, too, like I use a lot of Aura Day and HRV and I've done, you know, looked at some blood work on people, too. And, you know, are you framing it in terms of, oh, you're such a fragile snowflake now you're going to break or versus, yeah, you had a lot of stress. You had a lot of stuff that happened, you know, last week. But, you know, considering that you're lifting and performance, everything else, you know, went pretty good. So you're not going to die. It's going to be OK. We'll make some changes. So it'll be you know, better, but I think it just depends on also are you viewing that stress as something you can take and then you'll become better because of it or are you viewing that as oh boy, I only slept six hours training's gonna suck today yeah, might not, yeah I agree you can't sleep, you know, five, four hours every night and do well, but you know, a few hits here and there is is not going to make or break you either. Yeah, that's what I mean about interpretation, right? I remember yeah. some of the best squat workouts of my life I've had on like five to six hours sleep. Yeah. You know, uh, the one-offs, you know, like, God, I slept yeah, like crap. Good. Yeah. But yeah. once doesn't really do it. You know, so. All right, let's go to break. When we come back, we've just got some more um, news for everybody. And uh, we'll be back in a minute. Hello, dear ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, yeah, you know who this is. Uh, so I'm here to tell you about uh, Dr. Mike T. Nelson's uh, new book, uh, Why You Should Eat Keto. I don't do it because, I mean, look at me. Come on, I'm fabulous and I'm fantastic. Anyway, you should text uh, Keto ebook all in one word to 44222 to receive your free copy. Do it. Do it now. Hey listeners, this is Dr. Lonnie Lowry. If you've ever had anyone critique you uh, on your protein intake as part of your weightlifting lifestyle, oh, you poor meathead, all that extra protein is going to rot your kidneys or weaken your bones or dehydrate you or give you gout or who knows what. Uh, there is a book available. You could simply Google CRC Press and Lowry. And what I've done is reach out to experts all over the world and create a book, a single compendium that you can hold up and say, this is why I consume extra protein. This can be very valuable when you're um, being quote-unquote educated uh, by various professionals on the topic. Uh, there's enormous amount of literature in this book on the safety, uh, the effectiveness, how protein works in cells, the history of protein and weight trainers, uh, much more. So again, please check out CRC Press and Protein and Lowry. You can just Google that, and uh, I do, full disclosure, I do make a small single-digit royalty on the book, but that's not why I did it. I did it so we can all have something, uh, our particular population, uh, to both defend what we do and to inform our nutrition and our eating. Thanks. Iron Radio is, of course, primarily a podcast. But over the years, there have been technical glitches calling for backup streaming, 
and listeners who wanted the convenience of other sources of audio content. Toward this end, Iron Radio is now simulcast and backed up on YouTube. If needed, please search Lawnman07 or Iron Radio from within YouTube. There's not much video, but if you like to listen through YouTube on a Roku or other living room device, there you go. Like your weekly fix of Iron Radio? In addition to being a popular institute on iTunes, we are also on email. Simply go to www.ironradio.org and sign up for the voluntary email. You'll get a once-per-week email, no more, that's little more than the show notes and a link to the audio. So go for it. Hi, we are back, and I'm going to hit up one thing that we had on the Iron Radio Listener's Facebook page. It was Matt Seeky posted it, uh, Just and he just put up, interesting, orthorexia. So the article's from Time magazine. Um, and it's about orthorexia, which basically is the unhealthy obsession with eating healthy food. And how... <laughs> How this the push for this is, or the the prevalence of this, I guess, has become a lot more, uh, a lot more uh, of late due to, and they blame it on social media, this and that. Um, this yes. lady that they interviewed, you know, she was her her habit was fueled by influencers peddling extreme diets and this and that, and it just got to the point where, like, she couldn't go out to eat. She'd go out with friends, and like, she's quoted in here, she's like, I saw them eating nachos, and I just couldn't understand how they'd be fine with themselves doing that, and. uh you know, she completely changed to a uh, raw diet composed comprised of fruits and vegetables, and you know, basically couldn't eat anything else. And then she got fear and shame of eating anything else, and she felt good when she ate so-called good foods. Um, but then it said that which led to cravings for these bad foods, which led to binge eating these bad foods, which led to you know, just on down the rabbit hole spiral. Yeah. So yeah, and. Uh, no, I've seen it. I've seen it in people. I mean, and when I, uh, I'd say I lean towards this way when I first got into dieting. You know, you start vilifying foods. Um, is what a lot of people do. That's what all these extreme extreme diets are built on. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, they vilify foods, and instead of just embracing them, and that, like we always talk about, it's it's usually somewhere in the middle, is where reality lies. Um, like if you're I'm sorry. I know people that are in the carnivore diet, but I'm uh, an apple and some broccoli isn't going to fucking kill you. Yeah, it's probably good for you. <laughs> right. Vegetables are bad now, Phil. Where have you yeah. been? Well, I mean, and the other way. If you're totally vegan, it's like, you know what? That piece of ham is probably maybe just what I need. You know? mm-hmm. So, uh, and yeah, we, we've become a society of so many extremes. And then, and now I'll mix social media into that and all these people with huge voices and it's in your face and, they all seem so happy. You know, they only show the happy parts of their lives on social yeah. media. And so, yeah, I mean, it's just, it, it seems to be exasperating eating disorders. So, yeah. If you run with a keto crowd, you know, not to like pigeonhole CrossFitters, but if you're like, if you're really keto or paleo because everybody at your gym or box is doing it mm-hmm. and you're getting judged because you eat some carbs, that may be exactly what you need, you know, depending yeah. on the person. Um, that's the kind of thing. That's why nutrition assessments are individualized, you know. So I don't like these sort of template ideas. And 
food groups exist for a reason, right? Like dairy has lots of vitamin D and calcium, much more than a lot of other uh, foods, at least in gross amounts. That's partly why it's a food group. You know, meats offer zoo mm-hmm. chemicals that you just can't get from plant foods, including like vitamin B12. You know, there's some other other minerals and whatnot as well. So, yeah, cutting chunks out of the what used to be the food guide pyramid. Now there's all these different food guides, but cutting whole chunks out of them is usually a little disturbing, not just because of some vague notion of being flexible in your diet, uh, which is a good thing, too, with, you know, fuel oxidation and everything, you know, that Mike understands better than the rest of us. But um, just for the when you have variety, you get a, a little bit of everything. But you also don't over-concentrate. Like, imagine if you're a a fruitarian, which is like an Mm -hmm. extreme vegetarian. And I don't recommend that. I can't imagine that. Oh, look, gorillas are heavily built, you know. It's like, okay, you're you're misunderstanding (laughs) fundamentals here of physiology and what they really eat. But the point being is, then all of a sudden, oops, tons of pesticides. Now I've got some freaky cancer, you know, or Mm -hmm. something like that. So you're also, by eating a wide variety, not only are you getting what you need from these different phytochemicals and zoo chemicals, but you're also avoiding overexposure by eating like the same three things because you've just judged and labeled everything else as cheat, you know, or bad. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And it happens like kind of everywhere. I mean, I was at a conference several months ago last year and that was super awesome. It was very fun. We all went out to a very nice steakhouse for dinner that night and we're sitting there and so I order a, a beer and I'm <laughs> eating all the bread and I looked down this table. It was probably, I think we had like 13 fitness professionals at the one table. And I noticed, I'm like, nobody's eating any of the bread. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, oh, so I'll take the next basket. And I asked the guy next to me, I said, hey, so no one's eating bread. He's like, oh, gluten. I'm like, do they all have like some intolerance to it? Are they mm-hmm. all celiac right. or something? He's like, no, gluten's bad. I'm like, mm-hmm. really? <laughs> and I looked like bad. the whole night. I was asking people, I'm like, do you eat bread? They're like, no, gluten. I'm like, yeah. this was very, it was interesting. And I will say they were all kind of, you know, trained under one certain person who wasn't uh, a big fan of, of gluten. So even in the fitness industry and other areas, it, it, you see similar things all the time. And especially you get into, you know, certain competitors and stuff like that, too. So, yeah. Yeah. I understand there's got to be certain rules. Like if you're on keto, mm. you can't start your day oh, with yeah. fruity pebbles, kind of, you know, sort of thing. And at the same time, right, to Phil's point about the orthorexia, that's where these guilt-laden value judgments come in. Um, yeah. Imagine. you have a morality with it either, but. I, right. Yeah. I've often told clients, I'm like, just your food doesn't have morality. Like, yeah. Just, <laughs> just, you're confusing morality with what you're eating. Yes. And if you want to be a. A vegan for ethical reasons, that's fine. I, I get it. That That's your choice. That's cool. You know, but, yeah, berating broccoli and then a Pop-Tart because they have some sort of inherent superior inferiority associated with them is just so weird. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it is objectively weird. Uh, yeah. Imagine if we did that with exercise. I know there's – I always talk about how similar a lot of training principles are to eating principles, but imagine if or, we had like some kind of – uh, orthorexia approach to training where something like, I don't know, um, dumbbell curls were just bad. You know, they were, they were evil. They were wicked. Um, they're going to ruin you. 
we don't do that. That's one thing that we don't extrapolate over to the lifting, I don't think. I mean, I'm guessing there's probably a few lifts that aren't going to fly well in Phil's gym without some judgment, though. (laughs) (laughs) Dumbbell kickbacks. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Yeah, but I I just don't see the same, quite the same level of, like, shame and guilt, you know, with anything from the lifting stuff. You might be like, well, unless somebody's doing something completely preposterous. Um, well, there's so much emotion tied to eating in our society, you know, and there's nothing I don't I can't think of anything else in our society that like people take offense to somebody else eating that way. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. you're on a diet and like, oh, my God, I can't believe you're doing that. It's none of your business. Yep. It's not affecting you in any way. Yep. If I sit yeah. here and don't eat any carbs. So I don't know what your problem is. So, right. I I had that happen actually at a friend's lake house several years ago. A friend of mine, she comes up and she's like, Hey, you have to have one of these uh, brownies I made. I said, Oh, they look good. But I said, I'm I'm fine for now. She's like, No, no, you have to have one. I'm like, There's a whole pan here. I'm sure they'll be around for a while. I said, I'll grab one later. She's like, No, you must have one right now. And I'm like, Why are you so insistent I have to eat one of your brownies? And she's like, Because if you do, then it's okay for me to eat one. And I'm like, wait a minute. So what I eat affects how you feel about what you eat. She's like, yes. And her other friend walks by with two beers in one hand and a brownie in the other hand. And she's like, doesn't bother me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But I'm like, how does what I choose affect how you feel about, I don't understand this. Yeah, such an (laughs) external locus of control, you know, geez. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Okay. Yeah, that's that's an ongoing thing, um, and th- it actually ties in with this bit of news. Let me share this one uh, from the Institute of Food Technologists. It says sustainability and the undiet are among IFIC's 2020 food trends. So last week I mentioned that I would bring up a couple of predictive-type trends, but the International Food Information Council Foundation, the IFIC, um, has published five trends for food and nutrition in 2020. So uh, one, and this is funny because we were talking about this during our keto episode recently about do people really know what's bad about gluten or do they really know what keto is, you know, that sort of thing. Do they even have the knowledge to define it? Uh, So it says interest in sustainability has grown. Uh, However, confusion still surrounds the exact definition of sustainability. So um, apparently sustainability uh, is a factor, of course, in purchase choices from people. But even though there's an upward trend by some notions in people choosing foods because they're more sustainable for the earth and the environment and whatnot, um, there was actually a decrease in people that respond in the affirmative about sustainability. So this is just sort of bizarre. It says uh, about a 10% decrease in the sustainability thing in 2019 compared to recent years. The lower number could be due to consumer confusion since 63% of consumers admitted it's hard to know whether a food choice is even environmentally sustainable or not. So how can Mm. you make your judgments? You could say, oh, I'm all about sustainability when you don't even know how that food plays a role in that system, you know, so – Confusion about what's sustainable or not and whether or not it's actually increasing or decreasing as far as purchasing, it looks like, uh, compared to questionnaires. Um, Mm. And again, with the confusion thing, the IFIC also predicts consumers will become more concerned this year 
uh, with the role of the food system itself in climate change. So this is sort of a related one. Mm -hmm. But in other words, people actually worried about the agricultural production, food waste, or even the transportation of the foods that they are eating. With a global food environment like we have, I, I this is going to sound really bad. I'll probably get some crap for it, but I don't have time to think about, oh, these apples were shipped from somewhere other than Ohio. I just added to the carbon <laughs> footprint of my apples, you know? Um, okay. Um, I mean, but, other than trying to eat, you know, locally, which I think is an awesome idea, I, I don't know how you're going to try to... The amount of time you'd have to figure out of, oh, my grapes are from Chile. Well, that's farther than Mexico, so now what do I do? <laughs> right, yeah, yep. I mean, I guess maybe this is very first-world kind of attitude, but I'm just grateful that we have such choice in the U.S. We have this huge open market, mm -hmm. and, I mean, you can eat almost anything you want any time of year, and that's just not always true everywhere, you know? Oh. So well, true even, a lot of places. even the ability to get an apple all year long. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I mean, any time of the year I can go buy an apple. Yep. And, uh, yep. you know, that's amazing. But, mm -hmm. um, another trend here, consumers' conceptions of plant-based diets vary. So, again, with the sort of confusion, I guess, it says one-third – that is 32%, and they're giving a number, of consumers say a plant-based diet is a vegan diet. That's how they define it. Mm. Um, it says another 30% define it as a diet that emphasizes minimally processed foods that mostly come from plants. Well, that's a different definition, mm -hmm. right? So I think this whole thing with fad diets, it does bring up a point, right? Whether it's keto or paleo or gluten-free or anything else, People have their own definition, not just their own moral codes, but their own definitions. And if we can't agree on a definition about what a diet even is, then, you know, how can we – it's even hard to have a conversation. Um, so, yeah, some of these people that define it more loosely say just limit animal meat, eggs, and dairy. That's what plant-based is. So confusion in diet types, and I guess this is a cue for listeners to think, how do I define my diet? Right. From sustainability mm -hmm. or from macros or from whatever perspective, how am I actually even defining this? Because you might want to add some detail to how you you define it. Um, yeah. And the whole plant based thing is like exactly what you said about a definition. If you I'd love to see it where they pull like 30 people on the street and ask them, you know, what's a plant based diet? And I bet you would get just radically different answers oh, yeah. across the board. So now we're not even talking possibly about the the same thing. You know, if you're a vegan or whatever it is, there's a you know, relatively clear definition of, of what that is. But now with plant-based, like if someone even asked me right now, I would confess that I don't really even know what I would consider the, the formal definition yeah. of that is because it's been so bastardized. It's a good self-challenge. Like how do I even define this, you know? Yeah. Um, one of their next trends is similar – um, people are becoming disinterested in fad diets to get thin quick, it says, um, oh. and more interested in sustainable concepts like quote-unquote intuitive eating. And mm. the IFIC defines intuitive eating as, a, uh, as focusing less on food restrictions and more on natural cues that our body gives, like eating when we're hungry and eating until we are full, healthier relationships with food overall. Uh, things like that. So this idea of intuitive eating, 
I think it could be helpful for some people who binge or emotionally eat instead of eat mm. when you're hungry and stop when you're full. Like feel and listen to your body kind of thing. Um, but again, um, when they say disinterested in fad diets about getting lean quick or getting thin quick, I don't think that's ever going to go away. There's always going to be some other way to get in a negative energy balance, you know, kind of thing. But um, a fourth trend that IFIC foresees is old classics coming back with a twist. So their examples for this are plant-based milks are going to get more popular again. So they said think like soy, coconut, almond, rice milk. Um, there's certainly a lot of different plant-based milk these days. It's funny how you have to you actually have to say cow's milk now these days. <laughs> you know, uh, and cell-based meat. Like they consider burgers old school, but the new twist is the cell-based because. And Mike and I knew this years ago. I'm gonna I'm gonna pat Mike on the back for this, but by going to that IFT conference, we saw how the price was going to start very very expensive per pound, and then basically reduce down into parity with base traditional meats. And we're starting to get near that point. I think 2021, there's going to be rough parity with um, whether it's cell-grown, lab-based meat, or regular meat. So burgers that are techie, I guess. Yeah, it'll be interesting. Yeah, I don't know. And I think in that same talk, he was saying they wanted to try to target high-end restaurants by supposedly the end of last year, I think, which I think they missed. But their initial argument was that it, it's not equivalent. It's targeting restaurants that it's even better than other types of meat because of the custom texture and things of that nature. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just one more they have here. Um, basically, brand loyalty um, is part of the upcoming trends. Mm-hmm. It says 70% of Americans report that they trust in a brand uh, and that it will have at least some impact on what foods and beverages they buy. Uh, this is more important to older consumers than to younger consumers. And if you look at the extremes here, people 65 and older, 85% buy based on brand. And younger people, only 66%, I guess, buy based on brand. Um, and then it also talks about like recognizing label ingredients and other things as trends. People want to be able to pronounce what's on the label. Again, that's back to the IFT thing that we saw, Mike, a couple of years ago about clean yeah. label initiative yep. and all that. Um, but yeah, that, these are all things I hope listeners will think about. Like, um, are you brand loyal? Like I can tell you I'm brand loyal with cars. We buy Hondas. That's kind of how we do it. And that's because year after year, decade after decade, they last forever. Uh, and they, Mm -hmm. they don't give me problems, you know, now whether you agree or disagree with that, that's fine. But I would suggest don't judge me based on my brands. Just like, <laughs> just like Mike's brownie story. Like, <laughs> I don't, I don't need you to buy a Honda for me to go buy my Honda. <laughs> so, um, I have one last thing here, and this is for the tea drinkers out there. Uh, I don't know uh, if you guys drink much tea. Uh, I probably should drink more. I'm mostly a coffee guy, maybe obviously, but I do drink regular teas, green and black teas. Tea may improve brain health. Researchers at the National University of Singapore recently completed a study that reveals the effects of tea on brain function. And let me get the, to the down in the weeds here. This is talking about non-herbal teas. Um, people know they're rich in, you know, uh, what, theoflavins, catechins, different bioactive compounds that have anti-inflammatory qualities. Um, so uh, let's see, researchers at the National University of Singapore recently completed a study that looked at the brain function 
uh, especially the connectivity between the left and right hemispheres. So the lead author was Feng Li, or Lei, L-E-I. Um, they used neuropsychological testing and MRI. Uh, and they concluded that individuals who drank black, green, or oolong tea four times per week had greater connection between the left and right hemispheres of their brain than individuals mm. who did not drink tea. So interesting stuff on brain function. I don't know if that would ever help with like um, unilateral training, Mike, or anything like that. You're kind of a neural dude. Um, but that's yeah. interesting, you know. So. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, even the last course I took, I took the pain reset course from my buddy, uh, Dr. Adam, and it was interesting even how there, we used to be very much sold on this only happens in the right hemisphere and this only happens in the left hemisphere. And he was saying a lot of the new data on that from what we were, what I was classically taught when I went to school is that there's probably some hemisphericity, but it's not as black and white as what we thought even like five years ago so yeah yeah which makes me kind of rethink all the stuff that i learned about that going through college oh maybe it's not so up to date <laughs> i know yeah we were just talking about that yesterday like i've got some old books like endocrinology books you know and they're saying we suspect there's more than one type of beta adrenal scepter and i'm like oh boy this oh. is an old book <laughs> yeah, anyway all right. Well, there's some, you know, mail and news just so we can catch up with everybody. Uh, I have one or two guests lined up. Uh, one of them is he's actually um, a medical equipment salesperson, but also a bodybuilder. So I thought that might be nice. We try to have people that might be, you know, in a career that our listeners w might actually pursue, but they're also a little meathead, and that's kind of good. So we're digging into some guests for the upcoming year, and you know, we'll be back next week as always. Thanks a lot. See ya. Hey, listeners. Have you seen the store at ironradio.org? There are three halls in the store. One for Phil, one for Fortress, and one for myself, Dr. Lowry. And they're thematic. So you can go into our Halls of Iron store and choose based on your goal. If you need something to learn or read or something nutritional, you can look in my store, uh, Lonnie's store. If you want something about injury prevention uh, or competition, then take a look at Phil's Hall of Iron. And if you want something about motivation or daily training, Fortress's Hall has what you're looking for. There are some fun, heroic descriptors uh, as you browse through the stores. We try to make it a little more fun than the average boring online store. And whether you're a novice lifter or someone more experienced, you can take heart that you're not wasting your time. The things that we put in each hall of iron are actually based on our own recommendations. Protein powders that we know to be good. Uh, knee sleeves. Wraps of some kind. Things that Fortress uses in his own training. Uh, the stuff you, you see, you know is good. This way you don't waste time. So check out the Iron Radio store at ironradio.org. And um, let us know what you think on the forums. And certainly you can request products and we will uh, screen them before they go in. So thanks for listening.
Iron Radio is accepting donations. If you like what we do, the professors, the scientists, the bodybuilding show promoters, the athletes themselves in powerlifting and bodybuilding, um, please consider making a donation or maybe buying something from the ironradio.org store. Uh, We also are accepting supporting members. So for $4 a month, which is frankly less than the bank sneaks out of your account in fees, you can step up and support a form of sort of public radio for the bodybuilding and powerlifting and strength community. The Iron Radio podcast and all of the audio on ironradio.org is for informational purposes only. If you're interested in starting a diet or exercise program, it's important to check with your physician. Also seek the help of registered dietitians, athletic trainers, and qualified exercise physiologists in order to make the progress that you need.